Before we get started, let me just remind you of, of a couple announcements. Uh, one would be the ladies event this Friday night right here. Seven o'clock, is that correct, Deb? What time? Six o'clock. Six o'clock right here, Friday night. And uh, it's called the Decades Trivia Night, I believe. So they're going to have a lot of fun. They're going to have games it's gonna, for ladies of all ages. So ladies, you, you've heard tonight. Now you're held accountable. Okay, so anyway. Uh, take your Bibles out, if you will, and turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to be in 1 Samuel again. As we continue in this series out of 1 Samuel called The Kings, it's the study of the kings, and I'm excited for our teaching tonight as we get into the Word of God. Why don't we begin with prayer? I want to thank Scotty Brown for giving the teaching two weeks in a row. I got to listen both weeks at right up front and receive, and I'm looking forward to this Sunday morning where we will have the sing. We're calling it the sing, where... The whole service will be a worship experience. And uh, Brenton and the team have set up some beautiful songs, some scripture readings, some responsive uh, congregational uh, responses, and it's just going to be a, a morning of worship. And it'll be uh, both uh, songs that are modern uh, praise songs, but also modern hymns and some of the old hymns. So it's going to be a, just a powerful hour of, of worship. And so hope you can make that. Well, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Father, tonight we give you thanks that you've brought all of us here safely. We pray for those who are still on their way. And we pray, Lord, for those who have not thought about coming, but maybe they've tuned in or maybe they haven't by live stream. I pray that you move them. I pray that you, you remind them, bring them here safely that they can be in the fellowship of believers, and that we all together can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you praise for uh, the, the Word of God. We give you thanks that you're a God that never changes, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and your Word, the Scripture says, will stand forever. So we, we stand on that promise. And it gives us confidence in a day when everything's changing around us, when the culture is all over the map, and yet we can be stationed, moored to the Word of God. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, by way of introduction, let me share that despite the prophet Samuel's warnings, the people of Israel had demanded a king and had been granted one in the person of Saul, but because of repeated disobedience on behalf of Saul, God rejected him as king. And in his place, God raised up David as the new king of Israel. Now, even though he anointed him as the next king, he told Saul that he had already chosen the next king and that the next king is your neighbor, yet David had not come into the throne yet. And we're in that period of time when Saul is still king. He reigned for 40 years. We're in that period of time when God has already taken his blessing off of Saul. He has removed his spirit from Saul. And in fact, Saul is now filled with an unholy spirit. And uh, David has been anointed as the next king. 
The Bible says that when he was anointed, the Spirit of God came upon him mightily. And so, uh, interestingly, people like to think of David as this great, great man who did all these incredible things, and what a great guy, what an what a, what a influence he was. Uh, David was very ordinary. David was a shepherd boy. When David slew the bear and the lion, it was God who gave him the ability to do that. When he slew Goliath, he gave all the glory to God. He didn't take any of it for himself. When David becomes king, he, God is the one who gets all the glory in his life. And so God's not really looking for great people. He's looking for ordinary people who believe in a great God. And that's what God found in David, a man after his own heart. He believed that God could do what no man can do. So that should qualify you tonight to be used of the Lord. He's not looking for you to be great. He's looking for you to be who you are as He's created you and to trust in Him, and He will do the things. If they're going to be great, it's because He did something. We've said this about Vero Bible Fellowship many times. I'll say it again tonight. The things that occur in the life of our church that are good, God gets all the glory. The things that happen in the life of the church that are less than good, blame man. Man got in the way. That's the bottom line. And by the way, man gets in the way a lot when it comes to the life of the church. We, uh, we, we, we have our own thoughts, our own ideas. The worst thing that can happen to a church is to have a leadership team made up of business people. who think because they were successful in business that they know how to run God's church. That is not what the Scripture calls for. It calls for spiritual men who are elders, men who are broken, who are humble, men who meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy and Titus, men who can teach the Bible. When the disciples were approached, and asked, would you please deliver the bread to the Grecian widows? They're not getting enough bread. The Jewish widows are getting more than the, than the, the Jewish women from Greece. And uh, the disciples said, appoint among you seven spirit-filled men. Let them do the delivery of the bread. We must be given to two things in the leadership of the church. We must be given to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. Acts 4, 6, or 6, 4, rather. That, that's the calling of God for the church, is to make sure that spiritual leaders under shepherds of Christ are in charge, not business people. Uh, and I don't have anything to do with numbers in our church. I don't know any, what any of you give. I, I don't touch the, the money, and I don't ever care to. But I'll equally say I don't ever care for, for a business person to touch the money either. What I want to see are people who might be good business people, but they are spirit-filled. They don't see the money of the church belonging to them, and they do what they want with it. They see God as the one. It's His money. I'm simply a steward of His things. So we're not looking for great people at Vero Bible. We're looking for ordinary people 
who truly believe in a great God. That makes for a great church. It's the God that makes it great, right? Not the people. Amen. And that starts with the lead pastor or the teaching pastor, right on down to all the pastors and staff and elders and volunteer leaders and uh, those who serve in ministries. We all are the same. We're, we're sinners who found by the grace of God Jesus Christ and we came to the foot of the cross and surrendered. And He saved us through His grace, through His mercy. We have nothing to offer God. All we can do is be slaves to Christ, to follow Him. Let Him lead the church. Amen. Okay, that's my little sermon uh, before the sermon. But uh, so, so this is an interesting time, okay? Uh, the new king, the problem with Saul is that he's not going to relinquish the crown without a fight. And this leads to an ugly storyline where Saul, who no longer possessed the Spirit of God, but instead was now oppressed by an evil spirit, he becomes this pathetic figure. He was jealous. He was paranoid. He was given to fits of rage. And worst of all, he now is attempting to destroy the Lord's anointed, David. So what is David to do? He hasn't done anything wrong up to this point. He's been faithful to the king, and he's been faithful to the Lord. And God has promised to make him king, but Saul pledged to kill him. So would David trust in the Lord going forward as Saul now is out to find him and kill him? What is David going to do? Or would he yield up to strong fears and violate his integrity in dangerous situations? Tonight we're going to find out. And what we're going to find is David's not a perfect man. Here's what I want on the front side to say that you're going to find true in the Scripture. Uh, having a heart after God doesn't mean you have a perfect heart. Now that, that ought to encourage some of you. You desire to have a heart after God, but you know your heart is deceitful above all things. You can't possibly know it, the Scripture says. And God understands that. He does, never does God say, David's no longer a man after my heart, even though David committed some pretty grievous sins. And he commits some even tonight in the text. These people who think that somehow the Bible has to just always be, you know, it's got to put uh, those who follow Christ in this perfect, righteous light, they don't know the Bible. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't hide the sins of God's people. Why? Because that's real. <laughs> the Bible's not trying to create a fake picture for us to try to follow. We'd never be able to live up to it. The Bible's real. And so tonight we're going to see that. The next three chapters, uh, we'll only probably cover two of them tonight if we can get through two. But the next three chapters describe events that took place thousands of years ago, yet they provide helpful lessons, both good and bad, for what to do in certain uh, frightening times today. And there's a lot of uncertainty, isn't there? So, chapter 21, let's get started. Verse 1, uh, we'll cover the first uh, five words. Then David came to Nob. Okay, we, i got to stop already. The, the reason David escapes to Nod is because of the threats that Saul had made against his life. Saul is envious and he's threatened by David who fears God. David fears the Lord. Saul fears David. 
Saul did not have a healthy fear of the Lord. And God has raised up David. Okay? You want, to, you want God to use you? Have a healthy fear of the Lord. So running for his life, David comes to Nob, a city of priests in the southern part of Israel, about three miles north of Jerusalem. So this would be in the land of Judah. Okay? And, and he come, it says David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, interestingly, you might want to write this down, those of you who are Bible students and like to take notes, Ahimelech is a great-grandson of the priest Eli. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, in verse 9, we learn about Eli, the priest. He was a priest in a time period coming out of the Judges. And, and the Judges, even though it's now 1 Samuel, it's not the book of Judges, but the Judges are still being spoken of in 1 Samuel. In fact, um, we're going to see that here again and again. It's going to be repeated. But, but Ahimelech, God had told Eli because Eli would not handle his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for their sins. Uh, God said, I'm going to remove you and your family from the line of priesthood. You're no longer going to be priest. Well, guess what? In fact, God, God was pretty clear on that. Uh, take your Bible. Let's go there and look real quick. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's just read a little portion of this because we're going to actually see the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given about Eli and his family. It's going to come true. Part of it's going to come true tonight as we study chapter 21 and 22. So verse 30, 1 Samuel 2 verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promise that your house and, and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house." Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. We talk about the Lord laying down the law here, a judgment against the house of Eli. And look at verse 33. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So God is not only saying you're not going to be in the priesthood, but uh, your men will not grow old, and as specific as, and they're going to all die by the sword. Wow. So let's go to the, back to our text in 1 Samuel 21, uh, latter part of verse 1. And the Himalek came to meet David, trembling. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Uh, David, by the way, reminder as a reminder, is King Saul's in-law, right? He married King Saul's daughter. So Ahimelech is wondering why there isn't a cadre of royal guard with David. Okay, you're, 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 you know, you're now royalty. There should be certain soldiers that travel with you. And David said to Ahimelech, verse 2, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. 
Now, up to this point, again, David has walked admirably before the Lord and man. He has shown wisdom and discernment in handling various matters. He truly has shown a man with a heart after God. But now that he's on the run, now that pressure's on, we see something come out of David that's not admirable. Here David tells a lie. He's basically saying to the priest, I, I'm on a secret mission from the king. And uh, uh, you know he's saying that to bury the curiosity of Ahimelech where he'll stop worrying about that. Then verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? So David changes the subject, which is a great tactic for people. I've found over the years when I'm talking to them and they ask about the Lord or why do you believe what you believe and I start to share it and I start to share the relationship and what the gospel really is and I can sense the Lord is beginning to woo them a little bit. They, they're beginning to feel conviction and then the next thing is, well, what do you think about this over here? <laughs> they change the subject. Get off that. Okay, you're getting a little too close now, preacher. You know, you went from preaching to meddling. <laughs> that's, a, that's how they feel. Well, that's what David's doing. So he's going to change the subject. And, he's, uh, and so, uh, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And if the young men have kept themselves from women... Uh, okay, so let's, let's break this down just so you understand. Common bread is what they would have given to the people. In, in the Old Testament, when God gave the law, uh, the... the God Himself, you know, Israel was God-governed. That's what Israel means, God-governed. They were not a democracy. They were not a monarchy. They were a theocracy. God-led. And so God set up His own system for them. And in that system, He actually put together a welfare system. America has its own welfare system developed back in the 60s. Uh, we, God had His own welfare system. And in God's welfare system, one of the things that people were to do was pay taxes. We often talk about the tenth that goes to God, goes to the church. We talk about that because we see that used in Scripture. Here's what you're seeing when you talk about tithing. You're seeing this. That's how much you're seeing of what God required of His people. God required in the ballpark of 26% annually from the Jews. And a tenth did go to the priest or to the temple. Uh, a portion of that tenth was for the priest to live on. A portion of that tenth was to purchase the items needed for the temple, for the tabernacle, like the bread, the pre bread of presence, the showbread. <laughs> And a portion was there so that when the poor came, they would be helped. And so the common bread would have been the bread that they had uh, in store for those who might need help. And, and he's saying, we do have common, or we don't have any common bread. That's the bread that, that David and his men would have eaten. What we do have is we have the, uh, uh, the holy bread the show bread, the bread of presence. In other words, that was bread that was set out uh, in the tabernacle on the table, and it was put there every Sabbath, fresh, and it would be there all week. And that bread was not to be eaten by the common people. 
the priest could eat that bread after the week was up. They would replace it with a fresh bread, a fresh uh, bread that was put out. That's all they had, and that's what he's referring to here. Uh, David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. And the vessels of the young men are holy. When he says vessels, he's speaking of just, you know, their bodies uh, of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from, the, from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away, which is the Sabbath. So Ahimelech seeks the Lord and receives approval when he recognized that his spiritual obligation to preserve David's life and the men that were with David uh, was far superseded regulations, ceremonial regulations and traditions. So that's what he did. He allowed them to have this, this showbread, okay, special bread only to be eaten by the priests after it was taken off of the table in the tabernacle. Now, interestingly, if you want to turn there, you could, but in, in the New Testament, Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, is questioned by the Pharisees. What happened? They saw on the Sabbath, Jesus coming through town, and His disciples saw a field, and they walked over, and they pulled some stalks of wheat. And... Uh, getting back to God's welfare system. In His welfare system, He said, if you own a field, uh, in one place He says, you only go through with one harvest. You go through your field once. Don't go through a second time. Uh, another time He said, as you harvest your field, only take the main part of the field. Do not harvest the corners of your field. That is for the sojourner and for the poor. Now listen, this is God's welfare system set up in the Bible. He said, so, so that when they are passing through, they can stop and go on your field and pick the wheat stalk or the rye, the oat, whatever it is, and, and have something to eat. They still, even the welfare system required that they work for it. Not that they just stay home and have everything delivered to them. Now, obviously, God was not referring to people who could not work, could not get up and go to the field. They would take things to them. But He's referring to people who have an ability to work and don't, which is very much superior to our welfare system. And, you know, we, we have a problem right now in our country, and our president uh, is giving kickback to the idea that we've made the, the unemployment system so easy that people can make more money staying home and not working than, they, than, than going to work. And he gave kickback. He didn't agree with that. He said, in fact, we ought to give more money to them. Wow. Um, I would tell you, you, you go with God's Word. The, here's what the Bible says. If a man doesn't work, he does not eat. Why is that? Because God's cruel? No. If a man or a woman has the ability to work, they have the faculties to work, they can do it, you gain a sense of dignity and pride in going out and working with your hands to eat food. 
It doesn't steal away. It doesn't take away your sense of, of responsibility, your sense of dignity. God is trying to help people by saying that. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So Jesus passes through on the Sabbath, and His disciples are out there, and they went through a wheat field, and of course they pulled some wheat stalks. And what they would do, they would take the, the stalk the, where the corn, the wheat corn is, is what they would call it, and they would take it and they would rub it in their hands, and it would loosen the hull surrounding the, the kernel, the corn. And the, after they would loosen it, then they would open their hand and blow like a threshing floor, and all the, the hull would, would, would fly away in the wind, and all that's left is the, the wheat corn, the little corn on the inside, and they would, they would eat it. And it tastes quite good. And they were doing this because they were hungry. And they were doing it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees said, what, 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 what? they're freaking out. They're working on the Sabbath because they're doing this. And Jesus points back to this story when David and his men were given the bread of presence, which was not to be eaten. And the point being that, uh, and you got to give Ahimelech credit for this. He recognized that there is something more important than the law. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life, the Scripture says. What is more important than the law? Love. Remember what Jesus said when, the, when they said, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, love and love, love God, love man. If you just do those two, in those two are all the Old Testament prophets and the laws. They're wound up in those. It's not about keeping rules and checking the boxes. It's about love. And Ahimelech saw that these men were hungry, that they could die if they didn't eat, and so he fed them, even the bread that was not to be served. And God was okay with it, because Jesus himself is addressing it and speaking to it. Now, verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, he was listening to this conversation between David and Ahimelech and uh, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, Doeg means, write this down if you'd like, fearful. He struck fear in those around him because he was Saul's one-man CIA. He's out on mission trying to find David. He finds him, and before he reports back to Saul, he pays attention to what David is saying and what this man is saying, and, he, and so he goes back and he reports it. Then David said to Ahimelech, verse 8, then, you, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Another lie. He is not on the, the king's mission, and, and he's lying at every turn. So David, under pressure, knowing that Saul's trying to kill him, and he's running, David starts to crack a little bit. 
David starts to reveal that even though he's a man after God's heart, he's also clothed in flesh and blood, and he can still sin. And every human being is that way. There is no Christian who does not sin. I've often said, and there are Christians who think they never sin. They think they've conquered sin. They call it the second work of grace. I've got the second work of grace. I'm sanctified, past tense. I no longer sin. They'll tell you that. My response to that is the only way that you, you don't, or the only way, this is not good, but I'm going to say it anyway. To not sin means that you live above a bar and never visit the bar, okay? You can live above the bar and never be in the bar and you're not sinning. But the reality is every person falls short of the glory of God. Not just before you got saved, even after you get saved. David is proof of that. But here's the good news, church. The mercy and the grace of God, the love of the Father, even though David is lying, even though he's showing a weakness while he's under strain and pressure and stress, God still sees him as a man after his own heart. It really is a beautiful thing here. Uh, so David now, not only did David, uh, he lies, uh, but he now not only is relying on a lie to get him by, now he's also wanting a weapon to get him by. And if you remember early on, uh, David wasn't concerned about the weapon. It was Saul who said, put on my armor and take my sword and go out and slay Goliath. He's like, I don't need all that stuff. The Lord's going to deliver Goliath to us. The Lord will do it. Now, under pressure, he's not so much looking to the Lord. He tells lies, makes up his own story to cover himself. And, and what do you have by way of a sword? I need a weapon. And the priest said, verse 9, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that, that here. And David said, that, there is none like that sword. Give it to me. So again, David is on a downward spiral. He's a lover of God, but now he's trusting in lies and in Goliath's sword. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is still with him, but he's not allocating it. He's not, he's not connecting into it. There are times where we are walking very closely with God, and we can sense His presence and we walk in, in godly confidence. And then there's other times where we start to get a little carnal. We walk in the flesh. And when you're walking in the flesh, as a believer, uh, you don't have God's confidence. It's, that's why at night you go to bed with a guilty conscience. Good. You need a guilty conscience to remind you that you've drifted away from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't mean that God's left you. It doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation. It simply means that right now you don't have the confidence of God in your life, in your decision-making, in the things that you put your hand to. And you need to return to the Lord. And we all can get there. Amen? And so we need to return. Uh, so let me share this with you. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. Write it down, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For, we, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
boy, if David could have just heard that from Paul. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So when we're walking in the flesh, we start depending on physical, fleshly weapons. When we're walking in the Spirit, we depend upon the Spirit of the living God. We're not given over to fleshly things. You say, how is it possible? Do you really think, Greg, that a Christian can walk in the flesh? Absolutely. Paul tells us that much in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to turn there real quick, let's just look at it. I wasn't prepared to share it, but we can turn there. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 real quick. I just want to show it to you. Paul absolutely believed that Christians could walk in the flesh. Look what he says. Chapter 3, he starts off in, in verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the what? Flesh. As infants in Christ. So Paul says a couple things there we need to pay attention to. First of all, he says when you're walking in the flesh as a Christian, you're like a little baby that's never grown up. You're still, you're still sucking at the teat instead of eating meat. You're still be, you need to be weaned. You're choosing to be a brat. He could be speaking to somebody who's been in the Lord for 80 years, and they're still a brat. It's not an age thing. It's about, it's about walking in the flesh. And, and look what he says. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. They were carnal. They're called carnal Christians. You say, well, how do you know they were saved? Because look what he calls them. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people. They're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Paul would never have called them a brother or a sister if they weren't saved. He's not speaking. Who's he writing to? 1 Corinthians, the first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. He's writing to Christians and saying you act more like a fleshly lost person than you do a saved Christian. And it's wrong. You need to grow up. That's what Paul goes on to talk about. Grow up. Sometimes it's good for us to say to somebody, grow up. Be careful when you do that with your spouse, though. That, that might get you in trouble. It's amazing how many people send their spouse to me. They want me to tell them to grow up. And I, I'm like, uh, here, I've got a rule. All of us need to stay in our own backyard. So when your spouse has an issue and they see it and they want to talk about it, I'm here for them. But I'd like for you to just go ahead and stay in your own backyard. We all got a junk, we got junk in the trunk. Amen? Deal with your own junk. <laughs> I've got my own junk. <laughs> I don't need to try to fix somebody else. I, I can't fix anybody. Only the Lord can do that. Verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. I mean, he is so worried and so much in the flesh. He's being so carnal and now he runs to the, to the arch enemy of Israel. You say, why would he do that? Because he really believed that there was no place he could hide from Saul 
in the land of Israel. So he goes over to the enemy. And uh, uh, by the way, Gath is a Philistine city. The Philistines were located southeast or southwest of Jerusalem. So the land of, you've got Israel to the north, you've got Judah to the south, and then down here you've got uh, the Philistines. Okay? They're closer to the sea. They, they came from the island off of Greece. That's where they were from. They moved over into the area of the Promised Land, and because they were so close to the Greeks, they had advanced weaponry, advanced ironworking. Uh, they were able, their tools were better. And, and they stay close to the ocean because they were seafaring people. Israel, uh-uh, no. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, when you see the word sea, generally to a Jew, an Orthodox Jew to this day, sea is bad. It, it represents sin, it represents a curse, it represents judgment to them. They don't see the sea as a good thing. And so Israel's a bunch of uh, agrarian people, you know, they're agriculturally uh, strong and uh, they're weak in every other way. So, but he goes into this land of the Philistines. And uh, if you're tempted to return to the world, I just want to throw this in here, just know that you're going to be a colossal failure because you have way too much time with the Lord to be successful in the world. You could go into the, back into the world and try to do it the world's way and it will eat you up in your heart and in your mind. You'll be miserable. Once you come to the Lord, once you know the Lord, you might say, well, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go back. I used to, years ago, man, I did this, and it was, I look back on it. Why did I ever leave it? Well, go back, and you'll find out why you left it. It's kind of like an old boyfriend or girlfriend, right? You couldn't figure, you, 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 you broke up with them, and then, you know, a couple years later, you ran into them at town, and they looked nice, and you're like, man, why did I break up with them? They were such a good, and you go out on a date, and you're reminded real quick, oh, that's why I broke up. That's, that's what it's like here. When you, and David's going to find that out. Here he is running off to the Philistines thinking, well, I can make it happen there. Well, not as a liar, David. And, and, and he does that. He takes his lies with him. And he goes in his own strength to try and make it happen. And so <laughs> this gets very interesting here. Let's read verse 13. So he changed, uh, I'm sorry, um, where'd we leave off? Verse 11. 10, okay. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did, not they, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He was found out. They knew who he was and he knew, man, this guy's going to kill me because I killed their greatest warrior, Goliath. They're going to kill me. So now David realizes what he thought was a smart move to get away from Saul. He put himself in greater harm's way, going into the land of the enemy. And that's always the way it is. Now, verse 13, So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on, his, on the doors of the gate and, his, and let his spittle run down his beard. So he goes from lies to just acting like a crazy man, all in an attempt to cover himself. One bad decision leads to another, to another, to another. 
and he's trying to cover all these bad decisions. And it's really kind of hilarious. Here's David, the anointed of God. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. The Spirit has not left him. He's just not appropriating it. He's going out and living life his own way, and now it's gotten him into a mess. And uh, so he's clawing, this is funny, he's clawing at the gate, acting like an animal at the gate in Gath. And they're looking at him like, what, what, this guy that took out Goliath, but look at him, the guy's out of his mind. He's goofy. He's, so he's pretending to be insane. But keep in mind that even though David's spiraling downward, even though he appears to be out of control, he pins in the Psalms, David wrote, wrote many of the Psalms, uh, he reveals his heart at this time. I want to take you on a journey. I, I found this very fascinating when I discovered it. Uh, Psalm 34. Turn to Psalm 34. This psalm is written of David. Listen to the words of this psalm, Psalm 34. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Even when you're being chased down by the king, even when you have fallen short of what God expects of you, even when you are in a land you have no business being in. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, he's identifying his weakness, cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The, young lions, suffer, the li young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I will bless the Lord at all times, David said. As we read this Psalm of David, this tribute to the faithfulness of God, it would be easy to assume that he was writing this Psalm while at the tabernacle in worship of God. That's what you would think. I will bless the Lord at all times as he's making sacrifices to God as he's lighting the incense or the priest has lit the incense and David is lifting up a holy prayer of, uh, as an aroma to God. Uh, I will bless the Lord at all. You can just see him doing that. Or maybe you imagine uh, David uh, on the hillside overlooking Bethlehem. It's easy to imagine that his flock's grazing and David's mind would begin to work and begin to meditate on the goodness of God and the greatness of God. And he would write, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or we might assume David uh, uh, is writing this while he's in the grand and glorious city of Jerusalem, of all places, you know. And he's writing and he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. All those are very plausible. 
but they're not correct. The heading of Psalm 34 tells us exactly where David was when he penned these words. Look at this. A Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. It's while David is on the run, when he's most weak and most fleshly, that God shows up and delivers him. That says a whole lot about God, doesn't it? That God comes after us, those whom He loves. And He loves anyone who believes in Him, who receives Him. And those who don't, He loves. He still wants them to be saved. But when a believer begins to drift from God, detaches from the mooring of the truth of God's Word, and gets caught up in the ways of the world, God still loves and still draws, still goes after. And here's David writing about it. So what if you lived in David's day. What would you say when you read this saga? Maybe you'd write, Remember David, the one who showed such courage in killing Goliath, the one Samuel anointed. I hate to tell you this, but David went mad, just like King Saul. And that would be the end of the story. We'd write David off. Guess what? That's not even close to the truth of the story. God never wrote David off, even while he's away, drifting, doing things his own way. God still came after David. I love that. Why? Because David still had a heart after God. Listen, Christian. While God's acceptance and forgiveness is conditional, it's conditioned only upon what a person's desire is in their heart. And the fact is, you and I, we look at people and we need to be unconditional in our forgiveness of people. Here's why. Because we don't know what's in their heart. And if we condition our forgiveness with people, we might actually turn from somebody who God is working on and He's reaching them and we've written them off. We've done that, haven't we? If we can be honest, certain people we write off. We make a determination. In other words, our forgiveness is very conditional. And yet we cannot know the heart of that person. Only the Lord can be conditional. And the Lord knew David's heart. Even though he's, he's manufacturing, he's the byproduct of his life right now is ugly stuff. Yet God knew his heart. God still comes after him. I think that's powerful. David's lost in, in hopelessness here. But God looks at his heart and God comes to his rescue. In Psalm uh, 56, when he's still clawing at the gates, <laughs> we, we see David writing something else. So this is still in the same period of time. Look at Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. God, I know even though I'm in a bad place, making, I've made terrible decisions, I'm having to act like a madman just to survive because I didn't listen to the Lord. But I know the Lord loves me. 
We are so hard on ourselves. We cannot forgive ourselves for the things we've done. Why would you ever not forgive yourself when God forgives you? Makes no sense. If God's going to forgive me, I need to forgive myself. I think this is beautiful. Verse 10 in Psalm 56, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David's not making up some story about, you know, his life in danger. and He's living it. This is real, raw stuff here. And yet he sees the faithfulness of God. So how many of us have, have quit on ourselves, even though God's very much wanting to continue to do a work in us because He loves us, He believes in us? Not that we have a power or an ability, but that if we'll trust Him, He can do great things through us. Sometimes we even withdraw from the fellowship of other believers. We get so down on ourselves. Or we push somebody else out of the fellowship. We just kind of cut them off. We don't talk to them at church anymore. I actually had a person who visited for the first time recently. And we were talking with them, and they actually said, we came to church. To us, church is about fellowship. No one greeted us. They're talking about Vero Bible Fellowship. And, and we, I, I feel like, as a church, we do a pretty good job of that. But it didn't happen. And that's, that's something we need to take to heart. That if God loves people, shouldn't we love people? And, and not just connect with our friends, but connect with those that God would bring our way. See, we should be on God's team. We don't have a team. Without God, we don't have a team. Amen? Can you agree with me? It's only God's team that we're interested in. And God gets to pick and choose who He brings our way. And we just need to love everybody that comes in the door. Amen? We do. It's so important. I love this. Write this down, this passage. You don't have to turn there, but just write it down. I'll read it for you. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Paul said it this way, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There is the challenge, that's the charge that Paul gives to the church. We are the church. He's putting it on us. What did he say? He said, uh, make sure 
that you are clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, so much so that you bear with others when they're struggling. You don't quit on them. You don't look the other way. You don't murmur about them behind their back. You walk with Christ. You walk right up to them and love them. Amen? All right. David's story tells us that we can't write anyone off. God didn't write David off in a low period of his life, and we shouldn't write anybody off either. And Paul didn't say, you know, I, I just need you to really try to forgive them. If you'll just consider forgiving them. What does Paul say? Let me just read it to you. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. It's a command. Do it. That's what Paul says. Well, but you don't know how bad they hurt me. When you say that, you are actually comparing what someone has done to you to what we did to Jesus, putting him on the cross. You're actually saying, my pain, my issue, my, my, my you know, difficulty, the offense that was committed against me is equal to what they did to Jesus or, or superior. That is so arrogant. Not, nobody, I don't care what anybody in this world's ever done to you. It's never as bad as what they did to Christ. And yet God forgave you for what you did to Christ, what I did to Christ. How can you hold somebody hostage? Make sense? That's chapter 21. And that's a short chapter. Chapter 22 is a little longer. So I don't know that we'll get through. We're not going to try and get through all of it. But let's just go ahead and tackle a little bit of it here. Oh, we've got another hour and a half. We're good. <laughs> Just check the time. Let me take a drink because that'll, that'll, that'll get me going for another at least hour. Okay. Verse 1, chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. A cave is not an easy place to be, folks. It's dark. And it's discouraging. I've traveled, you know, and gone in different caves, you know, out west and also even in the east. And it's damp, it's dark. And it might be pretty exciting because they put the lights in, they shine the lights up on, you can see everything, and it looks like a cathedral, it's awesome. I wouldn't want to live there. I don't want to go overboard with how nice it is, okay? And, and, and here David has gone into a cave. That's how discouraging this thing is. But here's the thing about it, too. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142, write those down. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 were written while David was in the cave at Adullam. A deep work is going on in his soul in the cave. Sometimes we go into a cave, a dark, deep place, you know, discouraging place, and God says, good, now maybe I can do a work in you. In Psalm 57, let me just read a few verses of that, okay? It's interesting to connect the dots back to what David wrote about that experience, isn't it? So in Psalm 57, verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. 
My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the, uh, the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Wow, in the midst of this place, God is coming to David. He's meeting with David. And David's seeing God clearly in who he is, his character and his nature. And David is blown away and breaks out into this unadulterated praise and worship of God. That's why we're having a sing on Sunday morning. That's why we're not going to do anything except sing to the Lord. Why? Because we've come through and we're still in a very difficult hour in the life of this nation. And we're seeing things happen around us and sickness and disease and we're seeing trial after trial and we're seeing uh, evil exist and even seems to be gaining ground. And so we're in a cave in a sense. And just like David, this is a great time for God's church to rise up and sing and see God for who He is and praise Him and worship Him. Amen? Boy, we need that. And then Psalm 142. Let me just read a few verses here. Starting at verse 3, verse 3 through 7, Psalm 142. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So David's being real and honest about how low he is, and, and, and almost like a depression. And yet he still has a hope in the Lord that God will deliver him. So we want to be comfortable. But God says, no. I think what's best in this time in your life is a nice cave where it's dark and damp and discouraging. Maybe that's what it will take for you to turn to me and just be thankful that I'm your God and that I have everything under control. And sometimes it's that quiet, lonely place that we begin to see and remember who God is and what God can do. We get away from all the voices. Listen. There's a thousand voices that want to speak to you about do this, don't do that, here's where you need to go, this is what medicine you need to take, and blah, 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 all day long. There's one voice you need to hear from. And sometimes it's in a cave that we slow down enough that we can actually hear that voice in the Scripture. And we begin to draw from the Scriptures. You turn to these, Psalm 57, Psalm 142. And let God become the forefront of, of everything you do. Let him, let him become the one that you worship. Amen? So, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Therefore, God puts us in places of difficulty in order to get our full attention that we might see the glory of God. 
If you're in a cave today, you're in really good company. David can relate to you. You're not in a bad place. It's a good place. Let God do a work in you. Latter part of, that was just verse 1. I don't know how far we'll get, but anyway. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Oh, great. Those are the people I want around me. I'm in a bad place, and who shows up? Everybody just like me. We'll all be miserable together. We'll all sing the, the, our favorite theme song, Woe is Me. And uh, so they all gather. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David, these folks who are just like him, they're miserable, they're in debt, they, they're discouraged. And they show up, and David's, God raises David up to be their commander. And he says, we're gonna, God's going to do a work in us. Let's, let's go with God. You know that's what he's saying because that's what he wrote in the Psalms, right? He's not going to give them a different message. And, and uh, a group of 400 men, by the way, those 400 people that were so discouraged and in debt and all the problems, they became the great valiant men of God under David. They became his army. Those who were beaten and bruised and wounded and shattered and splintered and crushed and annihilated by life, by people, became strong in the Lord. And with David as their leader, they rose up and God used them mightily for his work. It's kind of like some of us at Vero Bible Fellowship. Love how God does that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's interesting. Uh, as those men hung out with, with David, as God strengthened David, they became strengthened also. God strengthened them. Well, guess what? When the son of David, Jesus Christ, came, and men who were broken and bruised and shattered and splintered started hanging out with Jesus, the same thing happened. They became like Jesus. And that's exactly who we're supposed to be like, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being changed and transformed as people of God as we hang out with Jesus. That's the whole point of this thing. Hang out with the Lord. Walk in that relationship with Him. You say, how do I do that? What does that look like? How do I put feet on that? It's real simple. Get in the Word. Spend time in the Word. Become acquainted with Jesus. Some of you might want to read a, a great book written by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a, an editor at the, the Chicago Tribune. A very into, uh, intelligent man. And he was actually writing a piece. He was going to write this long piece on uh, disproving Jesus Christ uh, as God. And he did his research. He did his homework. And the more he researched and homework, the more he became disillusioned in his uh, skepticism and atheism. And he ended up becoming a believer because of the article he was writing to disprove Jesus as God. <laughs> and in that book, he really begins to lay out the character and nature of Jesus. 
Another great book was written by John MacArthur called Jesus According to the Bible. <laughs> it's, it's sad that we have to have that kind of a book, but today everybody has their own idea of who Jesus is, right? You, you got social justice Jesus. He's all about that stuff. You got all these different kinds of Jesus. No, we just need the Jesus of the Bible. That's a great book. The, the Jesus of the Bible, according to the Bible. No, wait, how did I say it? Uh, the Bible, no, well, for, I'm completely confused now. The gospel according to Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Okay. Um, so, let's look further. Verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So although though David is in a better place than he was in chapter 21, why would he choose to put his family with the Moabites? Well, probably because he was related to the Moabites. Okay? Uh, Ruth, the grandmother of David's dad, was a Moabitess. So there's a connection there. Verse 5, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. God is telling David, Leave the stronghold. Leave the fortress in the wilderness and get back to Judah. Get back to my people, my land. Back to the place of praise. That's what Judah means, praise. So he's saying, get back to the place of praise. Maybe that's when he started writing other psalms as well. I'm sure he did. Uh, that's a good word for us today. You say, oh, I'm in a terrible place. I'm in a difficult place in life. Well, then get back to Judah. Get back to the place of praise where you can just sing a praise unto God. You say, I don't know, you know, there's nothing good happening in my life. Okay, let me tell you where your problem is. You just said it in a pronoun, my. You've made it about you. Me, myself, and I. Let me tell you what you're doing. You're navel-gazing. You're like this. Oh, I'm in such a bad place. Get your eyes on God. God's not in a bad place. God's never been in a bad place. Find your strength in God, in who He is and what He has done, and how much He loves you and how much He's going to help you get out of your bad place. That's what you focus on. People, a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people who are in depression are there because they're navel-gazing way too much. All they think about are their problems. The best thing a person can do when you start to feel disillusioned and discouragement is setting in, I'll tell you a great thing to do. Go down to Publix and buy a bunch of those little roses and head over to the, to the uh, nursing home and just walk through there and put a, put a flower in every one of those rooms. Bless those people. All of a sudden, you've forgotten your problems. Why? Because now you're focused on loving people the way God loves people. You're, you're loving people who have been forgotten. You're loving people who have been disenfranchised in life. And you're focusing on them. You're not focusing on you. And it changes who you are. Amen? That's what we need to do. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height uh, with the, his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. So let me tell you where that's at. Saul's just five miles away 
from David with a spear in his hand. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all com commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? So Saul's already laying a political ploy, and he knows that David's already been promised to be the next king. So he's trying to disillusion people from following David. And he also throws in at the end, and by the way, uh, you conspired against me. You never told me where David was, even though you knew. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at, that, as, as at this day. Look at all the me's and my's and all about Saul, isn't it? So here's the king asking, doesn't anyone feel bad for me? You knew my son was in cahoots with David, but you didn't tell me anything. Saul's just in a really bad place. Why, why does he refer to uh, his servants as Benjaminites? Because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So he's gone to his people to try to rally them behind his cause. And he kind of gets on them a little bit. Whereas David was from where? Judah. And God said, get back to Judah. Get back to your place. Uh, when, David, when David finally comes to power, where does he make the capital? capital? Jerusalem, which appeals to both the Benjaminite and those from Judah. And so David's wise as well. He's shrewd in his political positioning. Verse 9, then, then answered Doag, the Edomite. So he's standing there with Saul. That's the guy that saw everything that David and heard what David said to uh, Ahimelech. He stood by the servants of Saul. He said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, first of all, he's falsely implying that David inquired of the Lord so he could do battle against Saul. That was not the case at all. He's taking advantage of Saul's paranoia and just making it even bigger. Verse 11, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. So all of his father's house, all those related to who? Eli. Remember? And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and, the son of, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Uh, then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has not known nothing of all this, much or little. I don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, I've been faithful to David, your son-in-law, just as I've been faithful to you. Why are you against David all of a sudden? He really doesn't understand what's going on. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. 
And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Good for them. So here's Saul consumed with paranoia and jealousy, and he orders for uh, the priests to all be killed. And to their credit, Saul's servant wisely, courageously refused. His, his servants will not participate in this. But look what happens. Verse 18, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest and killed on that day 85 persons who, were the, who wore the linen ephod. So when God told Eli that all of your house, those who serve in the priesthood, will die, uh, will not live to be old men, and they will die by the sword. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. So you can say, well, man, that just doesn't seem right because he was trying to help David who loves God. Yeah, but, he, but God already cursed. He put a judgment against the house of Eli because of the wickedness. Verse 19, And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So Doeg goes on this murdering rampage as a direct result of what? Of Saul's command? No, let's not put that on Saul. Of David's lies. Had David not lied, this would not have happened. This is where David, who took matters in his own hands, spoke things that were not true, and he actually contributed. See, every decision we make has a fallout. There's a consequence to it, to the good or to the bad. And this is the fallout of David drifting away from the Spirit of God, letting the Spirit lead him in his decision-making. And he took personal, and he went off on his own to take care of his own problems, and now people are suffering and dying because of him. It's important that you see that. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. So this is interesting. One of Ahimelech's sons escapes the, uh, and follows David. I would think that the last guy that he would want to follow would be David. Why? Because David took out his whole family by his bad decisions. But see, God's at work, and God knows the hearts of all men. And God actually raises up this, this boy, and he becomes one of the men that David leans upon when he comes into the kingdom as the king. It's just amazing how God is always at work. Uh, maybe there's a relationship that's been cut off in your life. Maybe they did something terrible to you. Maybe you did something and you lost their trust. Don't think God's done. Always be open to whatever God wants to do. I have to remember that too. Because I know what it is to, to, to be betrayed by people that I poured into, trained and loved, cared for. I know what it is to be betrayed. And, and there's part of me that would say, well, they'll never. I can't say that. That goes against everything that the Lord speaks in Scripture. doesn't mean that I'm going to be best friends with them or that I'm going to trust them necessarily. But you never know. God can do anything in people's hearts. Make sense? And that's what we see here. 
And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Uh, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your, your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Wow, what a great end of this chapter. David admits that it's his fault that these men died, these priests died. And he tells the, the one in relationship to them, you stay with me. And God's going to take care of me, He's going to take care of you. If you go out on your own, Saul will get you. He's out to kill you. I, I, you know, so what did we learn tonight? We learned that David is by, he's far from perfect. And his actions are sinful. And yet his heart is still bent towards God. And I think that's how we have to look at people. And we have to look at ourselves that way and be willing to admit that we're going to mess up. Don't plan to mess up, you know, don't set out to mess up. But when you do, when you fall short into sin, confess it, get real with it. And know that God's love for you is so deep that it covers all your sins. His grace wasn't just for past sin. It's not just for your present sins. His grace covers every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. That's how great, that's how vast the love of God is for you. Isn't that wonderful? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you tonight for your word and thank you for how you're able to speak to us and deal with matters in our hearts that maybe we have been unwilling to look at. Maybe there, there is unforgiveness, there's bitterness, there's resentment that's still stored up against someone. And we're not obeying Scripture when we're told to forgive them, that we are not allowed to have conditional forgiveness because we cannot read the heart of that person. Only you can have conditional forgiveness because you read hearts. We have to be unconditional. So, Lord, I pray that tonight we would see that, we would just humble up and surrender, and in a broken spirit, we would forgive. And, Lord, may we also know that you uh, will use the difficult times in our life. You will use the down times. You will use the dark times if we'll turn to you and, and read Scripture and be re restored and re renewed and replenished in the Word of God, that we can rise up. You will... You will use it to grow us, to mature us, to strengthen us, to change us, to conform us to the image of Jesus. And we're so thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you. More coffee if you want that or water. Grab a snack before you leave. Live stream audience, great to have you tonight. God bless.